Hello everyone and welcome back to The Corporate Casket. My name is Blair and today we're going to be talking about the taxi wars in South Africa. A couple months ago on the main YouTube channel, I did a video about Uber and I saw a few requests for this topic and I kind of went back and forth on it for a very long time before finally getting my button gear and making this. And I had no idea how intense this war really was. It's literally been going on since the eighties apparently. I do just wanna put a giant disclaimer out here that this is a many layered and it's a very complicated topic. And I am simplifying it for the sake of time like I do with many topics. And I'm going to try my best to condense everything here, but I am not trying to invalidate anyone's experience. I am just trying my best to get important noteworthy events within a certain time frame, so that it's easy to digest and understand. I just wanted to put that out there now, just in case any of you listening think that I'm skipping over anything intentionally or leaving gaps here and there. It's just me trying to put everything together to make it as cohesive and quick as possible. So anyways, we've got a lot to cover. So without any further delay, let's jump right in and see how this all began. So to start with, there weren't always these taxi wars of South Africa. The industry used to be highly regulated and controlled. When it was deregulated in 1987, however, things took a turn for the worst. Minibus taxis were on the rise and former director general of transport, Adrian Eckstein, told the passenger transport industry that minibuses do have their place in the sun. Turns out that place in the sun now accounts for an estimated 65% of passenger journeys, but securing those numbers has been a difficult road full of repressive policy and even violent mafia-like criminality. This was in part due to the white paper policies. This deregulation happened overnight, literally like in the blink of an eye. This is just one of the many mistakes made along the way, but this change coming so quickly and so suddenly really did not help to make this transition peaceful. Mac Maharaj, the Minister of Transport, has since released a statement on the South African government's website where he's recognized this change needs to be implemented in phases over a transitional period. In his words, give time for the development of a stable institutional capacity. At the time, the official voice of the fledgling taxi industry, the South African Black Taxi Association, SABTA, cautioned that the blanket deregulation proposed in the white papers would result in chaos with too many taxi operators entering the market too soon. However, ignoring warnings that deregulation would lead to violence, the government consciously opened the floodgates of the taxi industry. Although technically a permit system continued to exist, transport generally and the taxi industry specifically was to all intents and purposes hurriedly deregulated in 1987, after which permit enforcement ceased to be a priority. In terms of this de facto deregulation, taxi owners applying for permits did not have to prove a need for their service in a particular area or demonstrate any degree of financial security or competence, resulting in permits being issued like confetti. At the same time, corruption was rife. Although the official price for a permit was between 100 to 200, depending on the route, authorities were known to give cut price deals to favored applicants. Consequently, entering the taxi industry was often as simple as buying a taxi and a five mil gun and off you went. 
According to my source, others interviewed for this research have even pointed out a buy one, get one free permit system, which, you know, that's not how permits are supposed to work. To say the system was broken and corrupt would be an absolute understatement, but this and the rising violence was only a backdrop to set the scene. The violence grew immensely post-apartheid, but before we talk about that, we have to talk about Cape Town specifically. The Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation has a timeline about what happened during the Cape Peninsula Taxi War. Since it happened before apartheid fell, we're going to get to this first and explain why the incident at Cape Town had such a lasting effect in South Africa. To start with, different operators, both Lagunya and Webta, clashed at the Strand Street taxi rank in Cape Town, October, 1990. Months later in March, the violence escalated. Several taxis were shot at, two were burnt, and police dispersed about 30 drivers in Nyanga. In mid-March, after more than 12 people had been killed in less than a month of rival clashes, approximately 400 Guguletu and Kalicha residents held a 15 kilometer protest march and later resolved it at a meeting to boycott taxis until fighting between rival groups ended. On the second day of the taxi boycotts, March 20th, a taxi driver at Nyanga Terminus critically injured a resident. Subsequently, a woman was burnt to death and another woman injured in on an attack and a taxi in Kalicha. The residents displayed tremendous courage and resolve in the face of violence, intimidation, and the inconvenience of doing without transport during this period. The boycott resulted towards the end of March in a series of meetings between Lagunya and Webta and culminated in the signing of a 10-point plan. The 10-point plan was a wide-ranging peace plan that dealt with agreements in principle for negotiation on routes, ranks, permits, fares, taxi ownership, law enforcement, monitoring mechanisms, and rank and queue marshals. In terms of concrete measures, Lugunya and Webta agreed to display a T emblem on their taxis as a symbol of their commitment to the process. However, in mid-April, when the boycott was suspended, the Webta renegated on the 10-point plan and the violence resumed. Even when peace seemed possible and within reach, it didn't last. Again, in July, the leaderships of Webta and Lagunya agreed to a ceasefire, but on July 3rd, a Webta driver was shot dead next to his taxi. Many families were left homeless from fires, more people were killed, and later 150 shacks were torched. And it wasn't until 19 months later, in March of 1992, that the taxi war in the area ended when Lagunya and Webta were collapsed into a united taxi association named Codeta. And the thing is, this is just one piece of the taxi war. I know I can't possibly mention every single incident or we'd be here for, you know, about the 40 years it's been going on but I think explaining just how horrible and violent the situation at Cape Town became is important because it illustrates how broken the system had become. Even when a plan for peace was made, it was shattered. The taxi wars in South Africa have gotten so out of control and we'll see it in the headlines of a few articles to come. But for now, let's get into what apartheid is and why the violence in these taxi wars became so much worse because of it. Apartheid was a system of legislation that upheld segregationist policies against non-white citizens of South Africa. After the National Party gained power in South Africa in 1948, its all-white government immediately began enforcing existing policies of racial segregation. 
Under apartheid, non-white South Africans, a majority of the population would be forced to live in separate areas from whites and use separate public facilities. Contact between the two groups would be limited. Despite strong and consistent opposition to apartheid within and outside of South Africa, its laws remained in effect for the better part of 50 years. In 1991, the government of President F.W. de Klerk began to repeal most of the legislation that provided the basis for apartheid. President de Klerk and activist Nelson Mandela would later win the Nobel Peace Prize for their work creating a new constitution for South Africa. A new constitution which enfranchised blacks and other racial groups took effect in 1994 and elections that year led to a coalition government with a non-white majority making the official end of the apartheid system. So what did this mean for the taxi war? Well, unfortunately it meant more violence. And even though the government tried to re-regulate the industry around that time, it was far too late. Their attempts were resisted by the mother organizations that controlled the taxi industry. In 1998, the economist wrote that when people say that business is war, they are usually being pretentious, not when they run minibus taxi firms in South Africa. Rather than installing more comfortable seats or lowering their fares, a number of fleet owners have concluded that the best way to compete for passengers is to hire hitmen to shoot at rival taxis. One article published in August, 1993 by the New York Times goes a long way in explaining apartheid's role in this system. As they explain, the two main sources of killing in this country are political affiliation and taxi associations, said Semkelo Kumalo, editor of the industry newsletter, Taxi Talk. Sometimes it is impossible to tell which is which. The taxi industry began as an illicit stepchild of apartheid and later fell into official favor. When the white government banished blacks to remote homeland ghettos and black townships, it subsidized buses and trains to deliver them to their jobs in white South Africa. To protect its transport monopoly and prevent blacks from gaining a permanent economic foothold, the government discouraged black taxis with a welter of daunting regulations. The first drivers were men like Thomas Maki, who started 30 years ago with a sedan and a license he bought illegally from a friend who met the government's requirements. I am what I am because of apartheid, Mr. Maki said with a laugh, meaning a master of loopholes. He now has a fleet of 30 taxis in Adderidgeville. The government's change of heart was reflected in a 1984 report, which said black businessmen were less likely to be political revolutionaries and called for the relaxation of all measures restricting their development. Prodded by the increasingly powerful Black Taxi Association, the government legalized the 16 passenger van taxis that are now industry standard and issued a blizzard of permits. Banks joined informal township saving associations in offering credit for new taxi entrepreneurs. By the end of the decade, the taxi industry was being hailed by one economics as the flagship of the informal sector. And I'll admit, I've really got no idea what to say here. Normally for MLMs or bad businesses, I'll criticize the CEO, a horrible diet plan, a pushy hunbot, you know how it goes. But in this situation, I don't think I really have the words to explain this tragedy. And I'll admit, it's a little hard for me to imagine. I'm pretty far removed from the situation and I can't imagine this particular scenario happening in my neighborhood. Every country has its own set of problems, obviously, but I'm grateful that I've never truly felt unsafe getting into a taxi. Now an Uber, that's a different story, but a taxi, I haven't really had that experience. One quote from the article hit me really, really hard though. 
And that quote came from Sibanyani, an organizer for the South African Taxi Drivers Union. He said, when the owners go to war, it is the drivers who die. First, the people fought with clubs, then guns, now professional assailants. Yet, like he says, it's consistently the drivers who suffer. People trying to earn a living because these mother companies and owners are at war. And unfortunately, it seems like it's just the way things have been for many years. Even those individuals that admit they're afraid of taxis say they're more afraid of no taxis because without the means of transportation, they risk losing their jobs. During day-to-day life, yeah, I'm more afraid of bills, making sure Casper's okay, making enough content for all of my channels, like that sort of thing. But those are real daily worries. I have the luxury of not having to worry about being kidnapped at the forefront of my mind every single day. But that's not the case for everyone in South Africa. And that's really sad and that's very scary. I can only imagine how difficult it must be to battle that very real need and fear of bills and providing for a family, but at the same time, having to face down the possibilities of ambushes and abductions and possibly being killed, those are very, very real, especially during the 90s. The new attempts to re-regulate the industry came in the late 90s and early 2000s. The National Land Transport Transition Act was meant to formalize and control the taxi industry. One research team around this time tried to conduct a field study to see how many jobs were lost in favor of big buses as opposed to taxis. But these efforts were abandoned when taxi owners threatened the research team, just to give you an idea of how serious and dangerous this matter has become. One source explains the volatile landscape at the time. In 1998, SATCO, the South African Taxi Council, formed an industry-driven response to the government's failed attempts to resolve taxi violence. The organization has had its aims at the achievement of peace and unity in the taxi industry and the development of economic benefits and empowerment for all those operators in the industry. The formation of SATCO had an immediately demonstrable effect on the taxi landscape. In the year following its formation, there was a decline in incidents of taxi violence across the country. Whereas there were 242 taxi-related deaths between August 1997 and August 1998, there were 224 taxi-related deaths between August 1998 and August 1999. For a while, it seemed that an equilibrium had been reached, suggesting not only that SATCO had managed to govern its own members, but that the rebel taxi associations, while not actively supporting it, did not see that it would be to their benefit to disrupt the process. However, as it might've been expected, the establishment of SATCO and the proposed plans for the restructuring of the taxi industry had not been without their problems and have already provoked opposition from those mother bodies that regard restructuring as a threat to their violence-oriented business interests. A month after SATCO was officially recognized in June, 1999, a splinter group of disgruntled taxi associations called the National Taxi Alliance or the NTA was formed. Claiming to represent the majority of the taxi industry, the NTA issued a statement to the media in the same month that the tender for manufacture of the new vehicles was announced in September, 1999, stating that it did not recognize SATCO because the plans to restructure the industry were compounding the problems in the industry and were directly responsible for the present chaos and violence. This reminds me kind of of what happened at Cape Town. The second piece seemed possible. A wrench is thrown in the plans and it becomes far more complicated than originally thought. 
Obviously, I wasn't familiar with the situation until I started my research for this script. So I understand it is a many layered issue, but I am trying to simplify it to make people more aware of the topic in general terms. Continuing on into the early 2000s, however, yet another article entitled Cartel's Battle for Supremacy in South Africa's Taxi Wars was released in September, 2006. Much like the agro-mafia I discussed in the olive oil mafia video, it's strange to think of a mafia and crime being involved in the agriculture or in taxis. At least it is for me anyway, I don't know about the rest of you, but I can't speak for anyone else but myself in this. Personally, I'm so used to mafia and organized crime being all about drugs, gambling, prohibition, prostitution, like since those are the stories that the mainstream media tells us. Not that there's anything wrong with telling those stories. It just doesn't mean that I don't think many of us are just used to organized crime revolving around taxis and olive oil. Today's episode was sponsored by ExpressVPN. And I think right now is a good opportunity to take a break and talk about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Now we all search for things from time to time on the internet that are a little shady. Maybe you're doing research like me. And you know, if you look through my search history, it's probably not the coolest thing ever to see. Someone probably thinks I'm up to something weird. But if you're looking up weird things online or just in general, you don't want your ISPs to know what you're looking at at all, then you need to travel around the internet using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP cannot see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. And honestly, most of the time I forget it's even on in the background because it just kind of does its thing in the background and I don't really have to worry about it once it's set up and going. And ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even a smart TV. So there's really no excuse for you to be not using it and protecting yourself. To protect your online activity today, go to expressvpn.com casket, and you're going to get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Make sure you get started today by going to expressvpn.com casket. And thank you so much ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode so that I can continue making content just like this. Now, let's get back into it. Now, back to this 2006 article, they start by saying the following. In the last two decades, thousands of South African taxi owners, drivers, and passengers have been killed and many more have been wounded in one of the strangest guerrilla wars to bedevil any nation. The combatants are rival cartels that control thousands of low-cost minibuses or combis that haul a large share of South Africa's urban commuters and much of the nation's intercity traffic. Combi drivers are mostly poor and competition is fierce. Many operate illegally and even legitimate ones may poach others' routes to grab as many fares as possible. The cartels have fought for years over control of lucrative routes and the drivers who serve them, In upscale Cape Town and poor suburbs like Kalitsha, a vast sprawl of small homes and shanties, taxi violence has claimed about 25 lives this year and stirred a growing political outcry. The Friday ambush at a taxi stand in the neighborhood called Kuwait left one taxi owner dead and seven people wounded. The stand is served by the Congress for Democratic Taxi Associations or CODETA. Just a week earlier, an executive of the rival Cape Almagadid Taxi Association or CATA was fatally shot. Control of routes was the cause of the violence here. Codeta and CATA, two separate companies at the time, fought over operations. 
During the 90s, more than 2000 people died as a result of taxi-related violence, but those were only official statistics. A senior researcher at the Center for Applied Legal Studies at the University of Witwatersand and expert of taxi wars, Jackie Dugard, says the number may be much higher. She wrote that taxi cartels not only escalated from random violence to hiring street gangs for protection, then deploying squads of hitmen, similar to as we have heard earlier about the assassins. Ironically enough, Cata's vice secretary calls them a peaceful association that isn't involved in violence. See our emblem, he said, offering an association letterhead with a bird in a blue circle. We have a white cove flying here. Coretta's emblem also boasts a white dove, this one holding an olive branch above the slogan, catch the dove for peace of mind. And talk about some insult to injury there. I mean, Coretta's industry should prove to anyone that they are far from peaceful. Although the crimes and assassination incidents did seem to go down around this time, they began climbing again around 2011. Assassination Witnesses Report claims that not only is 43% of organized crime in South Africa attributed to taxi wars, but nearly half of South Africa's homicide rate is already six times higher than the global average. They also state, our data collection has not allowed us to determine what proportion of the hits we record have been solved by the police. However, David Bruce, the leading analyst on this subject, explains how there could have been roughly 120 political killings in South Africa since 2003, and less than 10% of them have resulted in convictions. It is doubtful that the overall conviction rate for hits is higher than this figure. A visual inspection of the trend line for total annual incidents counts for South Africa as a whole suggests a general decline from 2000 to 2012. Between 2014 and 2017, however, the average annual incident count increased sharply, reversing the previous declining trend. By 2017, the average incident count was approximately double the 2012 figure and an increase of approximately 60% of the average at the start of the period in 2000. And it's so depressing to see these numbers fluctuate like this and knowing that these are lives being lost. I have no idea if there's an end in sight to this because it does seem like every time the taxi industry takes a step forward, there's two steps back. We've seen it multiple times and I'm just going over the highlights and some important markings here, but just one attack in 2018, 11 people were killed. And in 2017, the BBC wrote about one case where a taxi rape gang in Johannesburg existed and minibus taxis that carried gangs and raped their passengers. According to the report, South Africa has some of the highest rates of reported rape across the world. At the end of all of this, again, I'm sort of left without words. One detailed source and timeline I found, not only about the taxi wars, but crime in general, is well over 700 pages in length. This was presented to Nelson Mandela in 1998, and it's an overview of gross violations of human rights, and it's just, Well, it really does go over all of the violence in South Africa and the disgusting actions by not only the police, but those taken by taxi operators, the government, and more. I don't think I can truly detail every single thing on this topic before I end this, but I just want to tell some personal and recent stories from these drivers. That way, the statistics we hear don't just sound like numbers, but real people, because that's what they are people that are working for very little money in a high risk situation just to provide for their families. 
One article reads, Nokbeni 48 is a driver of 15 years who has dedicated his life to transporting commuters. But unlike many of us, his dreams have been delayed while transporting commuters to their destinations. He and thousands of other taxi drivers across South Africa are among the most exploited and underpaid workers together with domestic and farm workers. Reaching for an unmarked brown envelope in the driver's door of a Toyota Quantum, Nikobeni poses a rhetorical question. If you multiply 500 by four weeks, how much do I earn? The 2000 a month, which is about $200 USD that Nikobeni earns is way below his monthly expenses. I pay rent of 2,500 and I need to buy groceries for my family back home in Zimbabwe, which is $2,000. And to transport it either way via taxi or bus cost me an extra 500. I too need to eat, he explains. The money we earn is nothing. Zungu is 52 and has been a taxi driver for more than 20 years. He can relate to Nico Benny's struggle. Every day he wakes up at about 2.30 a.m. to start queuing at the rank for his first trip at 4 a.m. The father of three says he is still working despite tough labor conditions because his last born child is still at school. Zangu also earns 500 a week. Both drivers as well as others say that because taxi drivers earn so little, to survive, they rely on what they call Imali Yesokisi, the extra money a taxi driver makes after reaching the day's target required by the taxi owner. The owner has no knowledge of this money, which ranges from about 200 to 300 a day. If you want to wait for the owner to pay you, you will get nothing, says Nico Benny, adding that every day he has to give the taxi owner 500. This means that petrol, per diems, and other costs remain his responsibility. And unfortunately, I don't have a good conclusion. This still appears to be an ongoing issue and it's horrifying to think that there's so many of these drivers putting their lives on the line for so little money, the prevalence of violence, obviously, and seemingly without an end in sight. I know that the ending for this today wasn't exactly super cheery, but I still barely feel like I scratched the surface on all of this but hopefully I brought some awareness to this topic and more people can advocate for these workers in the future. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something in today's episode because I'm not really sure anyone could really enjoy this one. Before you leave, make sure to follow so you don't miss another episode just like this one. I upload a new episode every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If you want to connect with me outside of the podcast, you can do so. All of my social media, YouTube channels, all of those other things are Illuminati, just like the title of the podcast. So again, thank you all for making it. Love you guys, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.